Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mid Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Mitovite has been producing high quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. Sunny Coffs Harbour welcomed a new face to its training ranks three months ago when Noel Mayfield-Smith relocated from Hawkesbury. The multiple Group 1 winning trainer had been based at Clarendon for 26 years, turning out many winners, including in top swing, famous Seamus and land sighting, all successful at the elite level. In recent times... Noel, who's now in his early 60s, has suffered the fate experienced by many trainers in his age group. A number of long-time clients had entered their octogenarian years and simply phased out of racehorse ownership. The passing of valued owner Bill Fisher about eight years ago dealt the stable a significant blow, and the proliferation of racehorse syndication has greatly changed the landscape. In order to sell yearlings, the syndicators tend to place them with younger, high-profile trainers who are based in the metropolitan area. To use an expression coined by Null himself, he's one of many provincial trainers who've been on life support in recent years. He and wife Emma made the bold and swift decision to sell Angst Lodge at Hawkesbury and take their small team and their many years of experience to a good country racing town. Coffs Harbour offered a wonderful climate, excellent training facilities and easy access to many other venues in New South Wales and Queensland. From a handful of runners, Noel has won three races in a short time, including a profitable result with Invictus Felix at succulent odds on Coffs Harbour Cup Day. It's a great pleasure to catch up with an old mate, Noel Mayfield-Smith, joining us on the podcast. Great to talk, Noel. Thanks for your time. Morning, John. Good to talk to you. It's always a wrench to leave a place you've occupied for a long time and a place that holds some wonderful memories for you and Emma. Yeah, it is, John. Um We'd been there quite a long time. Um, we'd built a house there and and so on, and we had some good times. And our daughter grew up there. But, I mean, I think you have to move on um, and reinvent yourself. 
um, and you know we tend to as humans get into a routine um, and I think it, it's always good to break that routine and look for something new mm. that sort of gives you that bit of a zest to, to kick on again. A regeneration. I think so, um, very much so. I think I read somewhere, I think I read somewhere where um, every company should reinvent themselves every five years. Yeah. Um, so that might be a bit extreme. <laughs> that may very well be, but I suppose for the for the the bigger ones, it, it um, yeah, they've got the capacity to do it. Mm. Now you tell me the purchaser of Anks Lodge isn't involved in racing. He, he's an owner, but his, his main um, racing passion is pigeons. Goodness me. Mm, apparently yeah. it's quite big. Right, so it's, a, it's an investment, obviously, on his part. It is. Yep. Noel, you fell in love with coughs 25 years ago when you had a horse called Fairlight Tower in the Grafton Guineas. You elected to stay at Coffs for a few days and you've had it in the back of your mind ever since. Yeah, I have. Um, I just like the place. Um, it reminded me actually a lot of Cairns when, when I was growing up there. Um, it had mm. a similar sort of feel to it. And I was just attracted to it. That's how it was. By the way, that horse I mentioned, Fairlight Tower, ran third in that Grafton Guineas, but I notice he won eight races all up, including four in the city. He was no slouch. Yeah, no, he did. Um, he was actually bought um, at the um, Mike Willisy dispersal. He was a yearling at the time. Mm. Um, and a bloke that, um, that owned him um, was um, a bloke called John Milling, who um, had a business in Dubbo, Stock and Station, I think it was, and then he um, moved to Sydney. Um, so, yeah, he was bought through that sale. Oh, he did a mighty job. Four city wins. It's a good trick. Now, you've been able to purchase stables right on the race course at Coffs. You've got eight horses in work as we speak. To what extent would you like to build that team? Well, we're probably looking to get up around the 20, just a little bit over, John, and... Um, um, yeah, that'd be a nice, comfortable number of horses in work. Um, probably looking for horses that A, we can develop and, and other horses that we can place better that sort of are finding it tough in the city in, in Sydney or, or wherever. Now, you've been appointed one of several trainers in the eastern states to prepare horses for an organisation called Stable of Stars who offer people the opportunity to share in the ownership of a stable of horses for the term of the racing lives of those horses. Now, those horses, mostly fillies, have been leased from respected commercial breeders who intend to breed with them down the track. But you were telling me you don't need to be involved in a stable full uh, of horses. You can organise um, a lease of one or two or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's, there's only a small each month to pay. Um, and at this stage, they're leasing them. I've got um, two here, um, a Shalar filly and a, and a winning Rupert. Um, they're progressing along quite nicely. It's quite a, a 
new concept in that it just allows people in a in a club in say my area to go into one of the horses that um, I may have mm-hmm. um, without an outlay of a, a large amount of money. Mm. So they're two-year-olds, Noel. Have they just gone two-year-olds? They have, yep. And broken in, and what stage are they at? Are they coming into their second preparation? No, mine are on their, uh, their first preparation at a track. Right. Um, they've had one with the breaker and a bit more re-education. Right. Um, and, they, yes, they've only just turned two. Um, they're very well, fairly well advanced, and... And they both look as though they'll they'll go early. Mm. Well, one's by Shalar, you say, who got the yep. Magic Millions winner this year, Shaquiro. So they're a precocious breed. Yeah, they are, and she does appear to be that way. She's not overly big, but um, you know, she's in your face, and and she want, wants to get rolling. So, and and she eats the place down. So it's all mm. good signs with her. Mm, absolutely. So anybody interested, Noel, can contact you or Stable of Stars? Yeah, um, probably Stable of Stars, um, mm. and they'll forward out all the information, Grant Williams. And, um, you know, everything's up front. Um, there's nothing hidden away there somewhere, But mm. and, and they can have a good talk to him and see if it fills the needs that they want to get into racing. In an amazing twist of fate... You've reconnected with Johnny Grisdale, who rode extensively for Nebo Lodge during your time there. John's in his mid-50s, he's still light, he's still keen, and he's still a very serious jockey. In fact, I think you could call him a marvel uh, if you look at the amount of track work he rides. By crikey, there were not too many riders in, in this state would put in the hours he does early morning. No, they don't. Um, he was telling me that um, a couple of mornings there he'll ride 17 um, <laughs> and, and then he does other duties around the place as well because his wife trains. Donna, and he yep. gives her a, He gives her a hand as well. Mm. Um, so he's busy and, and he's he's light. I mean, I, th- I think he, he said he was 50 and a half kilos. Yeah. I mean... Um, like you look today, he's gone off to casino to um, to pick up a couple of um, or take out a couple of spellers and pick one up. Mm. It puts the so hours he, in, doesn't he? Yep. Oh, he does. I mean, and John, you know, he's riding incredibly well. Um, uh, he, he really is, and um, he's enjoying it. You go back a long way with him. I, I think it's fair to say that. At one stage, at the height of the uh, prominence of Nebo Lodge at Rose Hill, he was pretty much the stable's number three jockey, wasn't he? Yeah, well, Robert Sexton said to me when when I was introduced to him, he said, oh, you're the one that puts the unfashionable jockeys on, (laughs) referring to Johnny Grosso, because John was only an apprentice in in those days. Mm. He 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 had only just come out of his um. Well, he was still with Bede Horan, mm. um, and he used to come down and ride some work, and his claim was quite good. But um, you know, with with Cassidy and and um, Duffy I, and yeah, those well, John was sort of um, filling in with um, the other horses that we needed to claim on. Mm. 
Noel, your story is a fascinating one. Let's start with your days as a junior teller with the ANZ Bank in Cairns. I'm talking about the days when the teller would record withdrawals or deposits in a customer's bank book by hand. Now, there was one customer, an elderly lady, who didn't like your writing. John, you're digging up a nightmare here. <laughs> it's, it's true, though. You told me once <laughs> she... Thought I thought You said she would, of, she'd avoid your counter at all costs. It took a lot of time to get over this, John, and you're bringing it all back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> Stirring up oh, the yeah, embers. Yeah. She, she, oh, I can, look, I can still see her face today because in those days we had a thing called speed banking and... And you just all lined up and you did, weren't able to choose your teller. If you were in the line, you'd get me, yeah. unfortunately, or you'd get the bloke or the woman on either side of me that, yeah. that um, had better writing, I guess. But mm. And when she worked out that she was going to get me, she'd be tutting and that. I remember <laughs> one day she she let the bloke behind her go in front of her. Oh, so I yeah. thought, well, well that, that's the telling um that's the telling factor, and it wasn't mm. great for a young fellow's in his first job self-esteem, let me say. No, no. Well, it must have destroyed your confidence because you changed, oh. you changed jobs. You went to work for the Queensland Transport Department. What did you do there? I did. I, I, um, I did accidents, actually. Mm. Um, so road accidents. I used to have to look at the reports, make sure they were complete, um, and then... We'd get inquiries from solicitors and that and I'd release the information that they're allowed to have. Mm. Do you have the occasional so, do you have the occasional nightmare all these years on about the lady who didn't like your handwriting? I did at the time, John, but I mean over the years there's been so many that have followed in her path that um, <laughs> I've got used to it. <laughs> well, your so brothers sorry. It's become the norm now, so I'm, I'm seasoned. Your brothers, Brian and Laurie, were training horses in Cairns at that time, and you'd help out in your spare time. So you learned the basics of horse management way back then. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, at that stage, I was restricted to filling the water buckets. I wasn't allowed near the horses. <laughs> um, and, and then I progressed to being able to lead them of an afternoon working, but mm-hmm. yeah, we used to give Brian a hand, um, um, you know, when we had had the spare time and that, because he was on his own and yeah. he had a reasonable team of horses then. Yeah. It's well documented that Brian brought a good horse called Tiger Town to Sydney in 1976 to run second in the Epsom. Now, during his stay here, he was contacted by a man called Ken Enover, who invited him to take over the training of a team of horses for the recently widowed Millie Fox. Now, naturally, your brother jumped at the opportunity and he immediately brought you from Cairns to become one of his stable foremen. I was in Brisbane, John. I Were you? In the, yeah, in the public service in Brisbane. Mm. But he... And, he... And, yeah, so I, I went and worked for Brian, yeah. Well, you're going... She's a lovely woman, Millie Fox, I tell you. Uh, was she dear old Millie? She was a delight to, to run into at the races, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she 
she never questioned anything Brian did or anything. All she wanted was that, you know, the, the horses were well looked after, everything was run smoothly and um, she was kept informed mm. and she was really nice woman. It was very fitting mm. that the Sydney Turf Club should name a race in her honour annually at Rose Hill and I know trainers like Ron Quinton, for instance, are always privileged to win it. Oh, it is. Uh, it, it was a very good idea. They put a lot of, they put a lot of money, um, you know, through their horses and that into the at that time the STC because they had that big complex across the road and mm. and that. So yeah, I think it's very fitting. You gained tremendous experience in the Nebo Lodge years, and by 1991 you felt the time was right to bite the bullet. You acquired a licence, you set up shop at Newcastle, you knew it would be tough, and tough it was. Dismastered was the horse to get you on your way with a Tari Maiden win in November 91. It was Victoria Derby Day, Noel. Yeah, that's right. And it, it was ridden by an apprentice from Emerald in Queensland. Goodness me, who was that? Oh, dear, John, come on, my memory's not that good, but um, <laughs> he's a nice young fellow and, he, yeah, country boy. Things didn't get any better for the first year or so and you tell me you were racing at country meetings only. In fact, you said you didn't have a horse good enough to race at Newcastle. No, I didn't. Um, I went up there, bluffed my way up there with one horse, prospects of none others. Mm-hmm. With the help of a few friends, I got I got a few more horses. But we were going to um, Coffs and not Coffs, sorry, Port Macquarie, um, Taree, even Kempsey. Yeah. Um, trying to get trying to get winners, and and it was I think it was probably only two years or or no, it would have been twelve months before mm-hmm. I got a winner at Newcastle. Goodness me! I reckon I travelled more miles than a. Encyclopedia salesman, John. <laughs> but then came that phone call, that fateful phone call from a man called Gary Murphy, who invited you to inspect a paddock full of yearlings on a Hunter Valley property and take your pick. And you knew which one you wanted the moment you walked into that paddock. Oh, yeah, she was she was a standout. I mean, she, she had a backside on her that was full of power and Mm. And and a lovely eye on her. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't a hard decision. But I'd already, we, I knew the mother as well because Brian had the mother. She was called Shark, um, yep. and um, she had a bit of speed, but she was nothing out of the box. But we, but she was by plus. Um, so yeah, so I did know the family. Well, the grey filly you took home was by Carla Dancer who was the sire, of course, of Sub-Zero. And she was leased by a few friends and some existing clients who called her angst. First start in a race, she ran fourth. Not a good start. She pulled up Shinsaw. Yeah, she was Shinsaw um, very much so. Um, and she went to the paddocks straight after that. Yep. Now, next time in, she won a couple of two-year-old races at Newcastle and Wyong, and then you headed west for the Wellington boot. She ran second to Acapulco Queen, but there were excuses. 
Yeah, John, the gate didn't open one, um, and she had to push through. Goodness me. Um, so that, that sort of didn't help her chances, and she runs second. Yeah. But we went out there because I was just trying to get some money together for them if she if she kept going the way she was, um, you know, that we there'd be some money there for the um, better races to nominate or acceptances for the better races yeah. later on, but it just didn't sort of work out because the boot was worth a bit of money then. Yeah, oh, and second prize was all right too. Yeah, it was. Next time back, she got beaten first up over 900 metres at Newcastle, but she was never beaten again. She won her next five straight. She scrambled in at Rose Hill on a soft five and then she hit her straps null. She won the Group 2 Silver Shadow. She won the Listed Furious. She won the Group 2 T-Rose and then the Group 1 Flight Stakes to complete the Princess Series. Now, you still get goosebumps when you think of the T-Rose win by five lengths. 22.1 her last quarter mile. Yeah. You know, John, I still remember driving down um, to that race and I got a phone call um, at Rimba and and there was a bloke called Jim McMillan who we'd, we'd stayed with out at um, Wellington. And mm. He said, what's your chances? And I said to him, I said, she just won't get beat. Um, mm. And I base it simply on the fact that the way she was going, but as you well know, the 1,500-metre race at um, uh, Rose Hill really suits horses that can sit up on, got a high cruising speed yeah, and then got a good sprint at the end. Mm. And she had all of it. Um, and and I, knew, I knew that it would take a really good one to beat her. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't to be. I mean, she... Now I've got a photo on the wall of her going past the post and it looks as though she's going down to the start for the start of the race. Oh, yeah, amazing win. Amazing win. 22.1 seconds the last 400. Yeah, and that was in those days. Mm. Well, Noel, she was well into her autumn preparation in 1994 when she suddenly developed breathing difficulties and a scope revealed polyps on the larynx requiring immediate surgery. She seemed to be making good progress and then you got some devastating news. Yep. Um, it, uh, I went down for the surgery and then I I didn't stay the, uh, the night. I went home and then the next morning one of the girls that worked for me told me that there had been a phone call from the university, and they said that she died through the night. Oh, um, dear me. The, the laryngeal muscle had split, mm. and um, she and it virtually choked her. Yep. Just cut her, just cut her wind straight off. Goodness me. You hadn't heard of it before, and you haven't heard of it since. No. Merlene had the same problem, mm. um, and they operated on other. They might have lasered hers, mm. but, um, yeah, so... She they gotta, they yeah. tend to they tend to grow back as well. Mm. Well, she leaves you with indelible memories. A powerful, as you said, she ticked every box. She had it all. Oh, she did. I mean, she was a marvel at home. Um, like my own two young daughters at the time, and they could go in the box, and she'd just come up and stand there and 
mm. and want to be pat and, and that sort of thing. She never had a malice bone in her body, mm. but you put a saddle on her and she was ready to go. Yeah. And, and it wasn't silly ready to go. She just she was knew when she needed to do it. You've trained far better horses than Mr. Dor, but he was around at the right time. He burst onto the scene in the wake of the grey filly's death and helped you through a very difficult period. He won six, he ran seven placings, $207,000. He won the listed Gosford Classic, but ran into the great mahogany at level weights in the spring stakes at Newcastle. Now, Noel, surely this is the most pleasant surprise of your training career. Well, John, um, <clears throat> I expected it. I'm, I'm a, you probably think I'm mad, but I did. Um, and I said to Gary Harley at a function during the week, I said, look, he's a big chance um, uh, to win that race. He'll beat the other horse. And I based it solely on this. It had actually absolutely poured rain in Sydney all that week mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they weren't able to work their horses. And my bloke was a swimmer. He absolutely loved it mm. and he was flying. And, um, yeah, it just it, it just worked out. I mean, in an, under, under normal circumstances, wherever, say we're on a quick track, we, probably, we wouldn't have beaten the other horse, but mm. it, it was all in our favour that day and he, did, he produced a job, him and Paul Falvey. Yes. Know, we were very happy. Yeah, Paul Falvey. Now you've plucked one from left field there. <laughs> Paul rode a lot of winners uh, in a space of three or four years uh, on the provincials and a few in the city. Very vigorous, very strong. He he could lift one over the line. He just suited this horse, didn't he? Oh, he did. Um, he he um, he got on really well with him. Um, Paul had this driving desire to win. Um, and and um, that's what, that what he was like. He'd win at all costs. And uh, if you have a look at the number of um, of uh, protests he was was in, and mm. times he got for for pushing where he shouldn't be. I mean, that that yeah. was Paul. Yeah, little bloke, and he could ride very light too, couldn't he? Yeah, he he couldn't in the initial stages, and then he sort of started getting heavier, but. He had back trouble too. I think that pulled him up in the end. Yes, it did. He made one quick little comeback but wouldn't have had four or five rides and he was gone again. I haven't seen him yeah. for a long time. I presume he's still in the Newcastle area. Yeah, someone told me he was in landscape gardening, I think. Good on him. Well, three years after Mr. Dor, land sighting came into your life. He was purchased at the Adelaide sale and was by a horse called Greg. In fact, he was named after a composition by the famed Norwegian composer of the same name. Now, when he arrived at your place, Noel, from the breakers, you were devastated. You tell me he looked awful. Yeah, he, he did. He, um, he, um, but he picked up quite quickly, John, um, and... and you know, he got rolling fairly well, but getting back to his name, an interesting thing, if I can, mm. Emma actually, Emma actually named him. Did she? Yeah, um, yeah. The, the cultural side come out in her. 
Because um, <laughs> I said, what the hell is that? Yeah. And then she explained and, and I, you know, it was a good name. Yeah, oh, great name. And he went on to win a couple of Group 1s under that name. He retired with a total of eight wins, six placings, 1.3 million, despite one massive setback as a three-year-old. He'd won four city races. He'd run second in a Group 3. And then you notice one morning he was slightly lame. And x-rays showed a little bone spur, didn't they, in the knee? Yeah, he was always slightly back in in his near side front knee. Mm. And he had a spur in the top joint and the owners decided to take it out. He got an infection in the joint. Um, And, you know, that's always devastating. But he went from not going to make it through the night to not going to race again to never having a problem with it. Mm. He was always a gluttonous eater, wasn't he? And he was obviously underdone when he resumed after such a long time out. He was unplaced in three Sydney runs, then you took him to Brisbane for the carnival. He ran third at Doombin with Gavin Duffy on board and then Chris Munch took over in a listed race at Eagle Farm, which he won brilliantly and he was to drop 3.5 kilos in the Stradbroke. You would have needed the army to get Munch off him. Oh, yeah. Well, Munch rang up for the ride originally because Gavin couldn't make the weight. Um, He said to him, oh, mate, I can't ride it at that weight. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear him. (laughs) uh, Yeah, he he was a funny bloke. But um, so he... um, yeah, Munch rung up for the ride and he rode him from that on, yeah, into the Stradbroke. Mm. He beat the Doombin 10,000 winner, Mr Innocent, comfortably. Yeah, he did. He only had 49 and a half on his back, John. I mean, a horse of his quality, um, you know, he had, to, he had to be able to do that with that sort of weight. Yeah, he was pitchforked in, wasn't he? Oh, well, he couldn't be re-handicapped after winning the Mercedes-Benz because mm. and he, and he, it was a qualifying race. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it all worked out for him. Just get you to stand by for a moment, Noel. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Noel Mayfield-Smith to talk some more about land sighting after this. The $1.3 million Kosciuszko is the world's richest race for country-trained horses and the field is determined by those who draw winning tickets in the Kosciuszko sweepstakes. $5 tickets are now available through the Tab app or your local TAB outlet. 14 winning ticket holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Holders of those winning tickets will have the opportunity to select the horse they'd like to run in their entry and if successful will then negotiate the terms of a prize money split with the owners of that horse. A $5 ticket could make it possible for you or your syndicate of friends to share in the ownership of a runner in a race which in just three runnings has achieved a high profile. Grafton trained Bell Flyer gave his slot holders a big thrill when he won the first Kosciuszko in 2018. In 2019 it was Handle the Truth and last year It's Me from Scone. It's an exciting opportunity for bush horses to take centre stage on one of the biggest race days 
days in the world. It gives punters and racing fans the opportunity to share in the ownership of a horse running in a $1.3 million race. Remember, the 14 winning slot holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Well, Lance Siding was back as a spring five-year-old for only four runs, and we'll explain why in a moment. He was unplaced first up in the Concord, then he won the Bill Ritchie comfortably, and then he ran in the Epsom with Brett Preble in the saddle. Now, Noel, you've always said this was the one that got away. You ran second, beaten a short neck by a great horse, Shogun Lodge. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you watch the replay, um, Brett Preble and nothing against him, but he'd never ridden him before. Mm. And and Boss was on Shogun Lodge. And if you watch the replay, Boss sat behind Lane Siding and followed him all the way. When they turned for home, I think there was two horses in in front of Lane Siding. He was on the rails. Mm. Um, Brett decided, elected, as you would, once they got up the rise, to come around them. Well, the minute he, he did that, the the horse on the fence rolled off the fence and Boss got clean up along yeah. along the rails. And as we all know, Shogun Lodge had a terrific turn of foot for a shortish period of time and then he levelled out. Mm. And he put a, a decent gap in, in landside. And then, you know, at the end, my bloke started to come again. Yeah. Whereas we had awaited for the gap. I mean, the other horse wouldn't have caught him. Mm. But, I mean, as they say, I mean, that's racing. That's how it goes. I was just, you know, static. He, he runs so well and, and he mm. come through it really well. Well, you decided to take him to Melbourne after that for the Group 3 Yalambi Stud Stakes. And to this day, you wish you hadn't. He was poleaxed soon after the start, never got into the race and pulled up with a severe back strain. Yeah, he did. He was um, he was sore when he came back to um, the enclosure. He drew the outside too, um, um, and, and that didn't help as well. Mm. There's a lot of interference in that race. I think I think a kid got a fair bit of time in it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right, Noel. I just can't think who it was. Now, obviously, you spelled him straight away, and next time back. He ran three good races leading up to the George Ryder without winning, and Chris Munns thought he was a touch disappointing when he ran fourth in the Newcastle Newmarket, and he jumped off in the Ryder. Now, he may not have done that had he known how your horse galloped on the cinders at Hawkesbury on the Tuesday before the George Ryder. Tell me about that work. Oh, he just absolutely flew. Well, I was in the middle... And it was a little bit foggy, so and Emma come back through the gaps because she always rode him, and mm. and she was oh and ha and oh no, and but, oh god, he's broken down. Yeah. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, oh, she said I've never been so quick on a horse in all my life. Did she? So I thought yeah. he was going to take off. Um, <laughs> and and um, yeah, so yeah. he he just absolutely flew. Um, yeah, that that was, and I thought after that, well, he can't, you know, he can't be beaten. This and there was, there was, I mean, I think there was seven group multiple or horses that had won a group one race in the race. Mm. Um, and again, I thought this was the ideal race for him because 
1500 again a horse of high cruising speed that had a good sprint at the end mm. the only thing was he was going into wait for age for the first time mm. and and that was the big test and that's what stamped him as a really good horse you replace Chris Munts with a brilliant 24-year-old called Corey Brown in the rider of that year. Now, let me tell you something Corey told me only recently in a podcast. He said that horse looked so well and so healthy and so impressive, it was an honour to be sitting on his back in the parade yard before the George Rider. That was a good rap. No, it was very good. I didn't know that, John. Yeah. Um, but um, he, he he was a lovely horse. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, he, he rode him very well and he got the brakes and he just accelerated too quick for him. Then came the Doncaster in which he started favourite. Damien Oliver was the jockey. He had a nice run. He presented at the right time, but he didn't let down in his usual style. He finished unplaced, about seven lengths from the winner, assertive lad, Chris Munts, and Damien said he didn't feel right, Noel, after the race, and he was dead right. He was. Um, he said he travelled enormous. He said in the run, when I went to let him down, he said there was just nothing there, and he coming back, he just didn't feel quite right. So we took, took him home, and by the time we'd got him home, he had swelling... Um, on the outside of his, above his fetlock joint. Mm. Um, and um, we got it x-rayed and he'd taken a small chip out of his sesamoid. Oh, dear. Um, mm. yeah, probably something happened during the race or whatever. Mm. Um, and he never raced again. We decided he wouldn't run again. Well, he spent the rest of his days at your Hawkesbury property and sadly he had to be put down early this year at age 25 after a brutal attack of colic. He had the run of the place, Noel, didn't he? It was, it was a hard day for you and Emma. Oh, it was. Um, yeah, it was. Um, he used to come and go as he liked. Um, mm. You know, you'd hear all the horses making a ruckus and there'd be, he'd have let himself out and was eating the grass on the lawn <laughs> and just wandering around and that the stables and that's what he was like yeah um but i mean john this is a good thing about the situation we were in you know we we're able to retain these sort of horses um some of them and they got such characters about them that it's just a lot of fun just to go out um and have them around um and that's that's the um that was the whole fun of it and Although he led, led a good life, I would like to him to lead, live a bit longer. My word. But it's always sad when they go. Following the land sighting era, an owner came into your life who became a valued client and an even more valued friend. Bill Fisher had raced horses successfully back in the 1970s with Bede Horan at Rose Hill, but he disappeared from Sydney racing for many years. He suddenly decided to return to the game and you got a call from him. Had you known him previously? I knew him at Rose Hill because he had um, West End Mazda mm. and they had a they had a dealership on Parramatta Road there at Parramatta. Mm. 
Um, so, and he had a lot of horses with speed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we all knew of him and, and seen him around the races and that. Well, it wasn't long before you had 25 of his horses at your Hawkesbury stable. We've all heard the expression, a model owner. He was all that and more. He was. I'll tell you how model he was, John. I, I, one day there he, he he rang up and he said, I haven't got your accounts yet. I said, oh, Emma's a bit late. Um, just running a bit late. This is two days into the new month. Mm. He said, well, he said, I've gone up the pay. I've written out what I think it would be and I've put the cheque in the mail. Goodness me. And it was there, all right. It arrived the next day. Yeah, without having and received what, a bill. No, nah, he hadn't got anything. He, mm. he just put it in and that's what he was like. Um, always spoke about what we'd do with the horses. He loved to put them out after a win mm. um, because he reckoned they were at their peak then. Yeah. Um, and, and they'd spell well. Um, but he just enjoyed his racing. I mean, he well, often still spoke very fondly of the times when they used to load the float with bead horn and go out west and, and win yeah. races out there and that as mm. well. But he'd been in the game 40 years and he hadn't won a Group 1 race. Mm. Well, and, and you fixed that so. for him. <laughs> you certainly fixed that for him. He re-registered his old colours red lilac Maltese cross and a lilac cap and uh, in top swing carried those colours when he won two major races for Bill Fisher. Uh, he was by a horse called Beautiful Crown Null, probably a bit underrated. He was getting plenty of winners at that time. Yeah, he was. He was a lovely put-together horse. Uh, he looked a lot like a Rory's Jester, actually, um, mm. uh, in top swing, but quite strong, good hind quarter on him. Um, yeah, really nice horse. He raced only he's 12 times. Him. You still got him there? Oh, still, yeah, yeah, he's still with us. Yeah, I, uh, you took him and, and famous Seamus to Coffs Harbour with you. Yep, yep, they're both here, yeah. Yeah, the rehoming of former racehorses, Noel, it, it's uh, always good to hear these stories and they're in great fettle and... They live out the rest of their days on the far north coast. In top yep. swing, raced only 12 times. He won three. He ran five seconds, one third, 1.5 million. His first win was a two-year-old at Randwick with Craig Carmody on board. The following spring, he won the Golden Rose for Hugh Bowman when it was a special conditions race with no group ranking. Wouldn't it make you sick? <laughs> Today it's a group yeah. one. Don't get Emma to started on that. Do not. Touchy point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a touchy she counts point. It. She counts it as one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're headed straight to Melbourne after that and he ran second in the Caulfield Guineas prelude with Patrick Payne in the saddle, but Pat was unable to ride him in the Guineas itself. How did Noel Callow get on in top swing in the Caulfield Guineas? Well, he was riding, he, he was winning just about on a broomstick at that stage. Mm. So um, Bill said to me, what about this bloke Callow? Um, and I said, oh, yeah. I said, they, they tell me he's a bit wild. And he said, that don't matter. Ring his agent and see what, what happened. So mm. I rang his agent and I said to him, um, 
Oh, what group one? Uh, what's his um, qualifications at group one level? He said, oh, I'll send them up to you. Um, and in those days, of course, it was a fax. Mm. So he sent me up a fax and it's a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> and I said to him, what's this? He said, that's his qualifications. He don't have any. So, <laughs> oh, dear so we put him on. Yeah. And he, uh, he duly won him. the money. John, he walked out of the jockey's room. I looked in his eyes and I thought, this is the man for the job. Really? His eyes were just about bulging out of his head and and his brain was going at 100 mile an hour, so it was mm. blokes for us. Yeah. And he did. He, he rode him perfect. Yeah, he rode him quite aggressively, didn't he, I recall? He was right on the pace. Yeah, I, 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 my comment to Emma going down the side was, um, God, he's got him a bit close. Mm. But, you know, it, it's interesting – like you get those jockeys and you put them on, um, getting back to Paddy Payne and that. And and he said to me, don't do anything else with this horse. He said, this horse is spot on. He'll run a big race. Mm. Um, and, that, and that was good information. And then Kieran McAvoy said to me, don't worry about um, – um, oh, no, one of them said to me, "Have a, if, as long as you've been around Caulfield a few times, yeah. um, it, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it at all. And and you know that was that was good um, information. Yeah. Glenn Boss had actually ridden him in Brisbane in the Australia Post Stakes, where he, I think he runs second or third. Mm. And he said to me, "This horse is going to be a really nice three-year-old. He's a group horse." This. Mm. Did he? Yeah. Mm. Well, so he, can, he picked him early. Boss, he can smell a group horse downwind at one mile. Well, you know, <laughs> he, he old mate. Um, Craig Carmody, before he came out and rode him um, for me a couple of times um, mm. in a gallop, and he picked him then. He said, this is a Group 1 horse. Mm. And I said to him, Craig, you've been drinking. He <laughs> <laughs> said, no. I said, I'm yeah. telling you. Because yeah. he, he he, we hadn't done a lot with him at that stage. Mm. No, it was good. We've mentioned famous Seamus already. What a good horse. 12 wins, 1.3 million. Eight stakes races, including the Group 1 BTC Cup. He wasn't as good on rain-affected ground, Noel. No, no good at all. Um, I, t- I tell you, John, all the horses I've had, like really nice horses and that, we probably owe more to famous Seamus than any of them. Really? And that is, mm. he came along at a stage where fellas say you're in the, in the ring with Muhammad Ali and you're just about to get that one punch that'll knock you into oblivion. Mm. And suddenly he walks in and he starts winning big races again mm. um, for us. Um, yeah, he, we owe that horse such a debt. It's just, mm. you know, we, you couldn't pay it back, John. Well, you, you're doing your best to pay it back. He's living the life of Riley up there on the coast. And you know what? He's a lot. He was a lot better horse than what his record had showed because he ran in three Stradbrokes. Um, mm. They were rain affected, mm. and the track was terrible. And he didn't handle any of that. Um, mm. And people were saying, "Oh, he can't run 14," but he could run 1400. Mm. But he never got the the opportunity, and he probably should have gone very close in that blanket finish in the Manicato because mm. he got he got knocked down early in the race. But yeah, look, he was a really good horse. Mm, that was Lincoln. Yeah. 
Lankan Rupees race. Now, your wife, right. Emma Noel, was born in England, but you tell me she is fiercely Irish. Oh, very much so, John. Yeah. Yeah, she is. <laughs> I think they're all like that, aren't they? Well, they never forget their heritage. No, not at all, especially especially the Irish. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, she is. Is it any wonder Emma can ride a horse? Her dad, Will Robinson, was an eminently successful jockey in the UK, on the flat and over the jumps. He was placed in an English derby, he was placed in an Irish derby. But over the jumps, he won the Hennessy three times, one of them on the great chaser, Millhouse. He won a Cheltenham Gold Cup on Millhouse, and in another Cheltenham Gold Cup, uh, he, Millhouse, and the iconic Arkle staged a memorable duel. Arkle won it, but Millhouse gave him one hell of a race. Has Will been to Australia to spend some time with you? No, he, he doesn't. Um, he, he never used to fly. Unfortunately, John, um, he died about 12 months ago. He was oh, one of probably the first first victims of the COVID. I didn't know that, Noel. Um, I'm sorry to hear yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's been a pretty rough 12 months because oh, you can't get, can't get back there and that's so it's a bit rough. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's the cruel part about the whole COVID scenario. Absolutely, that's exactly right. Mm. While we're talking he, about he, Will, he, uh, I'm just going to say he, he did what every jumps jockey in the Northern Hemisphere aspires to do. He won the Aintree Grand National in 1964 on Team Spirit. Yeah, yeah, look... He is a very good rider, a, a top a bloke. Um, you know, he, he was just a, yeah, quite an amazing man. Um, and, you know, sort of very proud that he was my father-in-law, I guess. Mm, absolutely, um, I can tell. But, um, yeah, he he was. Um, and, he, you know, he had a very um, colourful life. He rode for the Queen Mother. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he was very good. I believe your teenage daughter, Lara, has inherited the family affinity with horses. Not surprising. Oh, I, only to the extent I allow it, John. Um, <laughs> she comes down and gives us a hand at that um, and, and that sort of thing when we need to. But she's, she's very good around them and, and she does a good job in the stables, but she'll, she'll move off into something else. Well, Noel, you begin your career as a country-based trainer with a very impressive CV. 40 stakes winners, five group ones. You should be pretty proud of that. I, I am very proud of it, John, um, mainly because a lot of my stakes winners um, and group ones weren't um, what you would call um, blue bloods. No. Um, and... Um, I think, you know, the both of us, we've done a pretty good job um, with the horses that we've had. But I'm hoping by all means that it's not over and that I'm able to get um, a horse or two that could, you know, put me back up in those areas, even though I'm at Coffs Harbour. I don't see mm. it as a disadvantage, really. Um, I, I bring the same knowledge. I've just changed locations. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. And... Uh, I, 
don't you know I never use age as an excuse age means nothing to me and never has mm-hmm. um, I just keep rolling along and I've been very fortunate you certainly have mate and uh, you've grasped every opportunity with both hands and uh, you've done a remarkable job with the uh, you know with the cattle that you've had at your disposal over the years now I appreciate your time very much on a Sunday morning on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Lovely to chat. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you. The team at Inglis are describing this year's ready-to-race catalogue as the best ever assembled. The sale is scheduled for Tuesday, October the 12th and will feature 185 two-year-olds by some of Australia's most in-demand stallions and some exciting new sires. Most importantly, These youngsters have been prepared by some of the most talented breeze-up experts in Australia and New Zealand. The English ready-to-race sale leads the way in the field of two-year-old auctions with more than 400 individual winning graduates since 2015 accumulating almost $60 million in prize money. This year's entries will breeze up in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland and New Zealand. High-quality videos of each and every workout will be available on the Inglis website within 48 hours of the gallop. At your leisure, you'll have the opportunity to assess tractability, action, attitude and potential ability. To order your hard copy of the Ready to Race catalogue, email catalogue at inglis.com.au or speak to one of the Inglis Bloodstock team on 9399 7999.